So there's this Department of Water Resources representative who stops at a Texas ranch and he talks with an old rancher. He tells the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for water allocation. The old rancher says, okay, but don't go in that field over there. The water representative says, Mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. You see this here card? This card means that I'm allowed to go wherever I wish on any agricultural land. No questions asked or answered. Have I made myself clear? Do you understand? The old rancher nods politely and goes about his chores. Later, the old rancher hears loud screams and spies the water rep running for his life. And close behind is the rancher's bull. The bull is gaining with every step. And the rep is clearly terrified. So the old rancher immediately throws down his tools. He runs to the fence and he yells at the top of his lungs, Your card! Show him your card! (laughs) Well, wouldn't it be great if you could just uh, flip out your card and solve your problems, right? especially in government these days. By way of introduction, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24, where we have a governmental leader who's in big trouble, and no waving of a card is going to solve this problem. And as we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message this morning, I want to remind us of a moment in the life of King David We're talking this Christmas season in a series of three messages in a call to come and worship. A three-part series on worship. Last week was the challenge of Christmas or the call of Christmas, and that is to, to worship indeed. We do everything but worship sometimes. Today, I want to focus on the cost of worship and what it means to really worship. Next week will be the Christ who we worship as we prepare our hearts for Christmas Day. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have the most remarkable story. King David has done something as a governmental leader, as the king of Israel, that God told him not to do. Evidently, out of his own pride and out of his own carelessness, he disregards the instruction of the Lord. He lines up the people, takes a census, so that he can count his fighting men. God said, don't do that. Part of the reason, I think, is he did not want David looking to the sword for his strength. He wanted him to look to God. David lines up, takes a census, disobeys God, and God does something that is very dramatic. He sends his death angel on the camp, and evidently in just a matter of a few days, 70,000 people die. You think about that. You go to that great Vietnam Memorial Monument in Washington, D.C., and it's stunning to stand there and take in 60,000 names chiseled in stone. Add 10 more thousand, and that's how many died. David gets the message, and David realizes that he's the problem. And if you pick it up at chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, verse 17, David wants to wave his card. He's got to solve this problem. He's the government, and he's got issues. Verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me 
and my family. Well, we could stop right here and go another direction, couldn't we? Don't we live at a time when it, with, where we have a government that's got issues? And making no small headlines are the great challenges that lie ahead for the president-elect. A lesson could be learned by our Senate and the Congress here in our White House. We're the problem. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. David says, I'm the one who sinned. Let's deal with it. So on that day, verse 18, Gad went to David and he said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord. Okay, here's how you're going to solve this problem. Go up to the altar of, to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out. He bows down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna says, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna, Aruna says to David, let my lord the king take whatever he whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offerings and here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all of this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. Now notice what David's response is. Verse 24. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings, notice the next phrase, that cost me nothing. You got the picture here? David's in big trouble. He's made a horrible decision before the Lord. And now to solve this problem, he needs to go take care of this sin through a sacrifice. In essence, David is going up here to worship and David needs to worship before the Lord. He needs to come before the Lord and confess his sins. He needs to acknowledge who is God and that he's not God. And he needs to get his priorities straight and he needs to stop this death angel from slaughtering off the people. And this guy who owns the property there, this is now present day, this is Mount Moriah. This is, where the, the, this is the Temple Mount. This is where, it's also where Abraham offered Isaac. It's a, it's a great spot. So much has happened there. And David goes there, and, and this guy owns the property. He has a threshing floor there, and he says, look, I, I, he's a farmer. I've got some oxen over here, and here's their yoke. It's a wooden yoke and stuff. It's enough wood. Whack it up, bust it up, get a fire going, slaughter my... Anything I can do to serve the king and anything I can do to facilitate stopping the plague, the slaughter, let's do it. And David says to him, no, I refuse to enter into worship that is facilitated for me. I refuse to offer to the Lord an offering that has cost me nothing. No, no cheap deals here. No discounts. This morning, this is what I want us to talk about. I want us to, and you don't have to turn to Matthew chapter 2 yet, but we're going to end up in Matthew chapter 2 using this model of the Magi as an example on how to worship this Christmas. Last week we talked about how easy it is to miss the whole Christmas season. Jesus comes to visit us and we missed it. We didn't worship. Like Bethlehem, we're sound asleep. We missed the whole point that Jesus, the Messiah, is here. And there's the great call and challenge of Christmas that we be worshipers. It was the great response. Remember how we pointed out from the angels who announced it to Mary who pondered these things in her heart 
to the shepherds who came running down from off the hills to worship, to great old Simeon at the temple, to now these magi who come from Persia to the north, that the response to the birth of Christ is to do what? It's to worship. It's to worship. But I want us to to be careful not to plug in our American mindset about Christmas. You know what it is, right? We're going to rush off to the store and we're going to divvy up our Christmas list and we're going to figure out who I can go to the Dollar General store and get gifts for. And then my next tier up, you know, I've got I've to figure out which one I can get a stick of pepperoni and a can of peanuts for, okay? And then I'm going to go over here, but then I've got to go to Bonton and catch a deal on the crock pots because I've got a $69 crock pot for $19.99. Can't miss that deal. And, oh, by the way, in here somewhere, I'm going to get me some discounted worship in, too. As easy and as low impact as possible, right? And the next thing you know, the days go by and, and we're celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus and I personally have not even worshipped. There's something wrong with that picture, isn't there? And in our routines and in our life busyness, it's easy for us to neglect the ultimate priority of our lives. And that is the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that I am called to worship him in spirit and in truth. I want us to lay the stage for using the Magi as our model for worship and some lessons on worship that we need to take in by reminding ourselves, first of all, as we already have done just a little bit with David, of of four unacceptable dynamics to worship. There are four attitudes or mindsets or realities about worship that if these exist in my life, God will not accept my worship. The first one I've referenced already a little bit would be discounted worship. Something that costs me nothing. Something that is low impact as possible. Something that doesn't take up my time. Oh, I gotta do that. Malachi chapter 1. Just turn back to your left just a few pages. We've been here in the recent past. This is such a powerful package system, a, a, a passage, not a package. Got Christmas shopping on my brain, I guess. Malachi chapter 1, where we have here through the prophet Malachi a word from the Lord, a dialogue about the broken down system of worship that was going on in Israel at this time. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, this is the last book of your Old Testament. Chapter 1, verse 6, notice what it says here. Let's remind ourselves of this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. And the Lord says, if I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on, the, on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. You see, evidently, even the priests had gotten so familiar with worship, so accustomed to the routine of worship, that they even cracked jokes about it. They, they made snide remarks about what they did in their form of worship. Of course, this is an Old Testament system. It was very ritualistic. It was filled with symbolism. It was setting the stage for all of the realities that would come true in Christ. Where he is the ultimate sacrifice. And it was contemptible to him. They didn't even take it seriously. But notice what else he says. 
Verse 7 again. You have placed defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is it not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Look, they got into the mindset that they wanted their worship to be as cheap as possible. So here they have a system where they have to offer lambs. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. And so they take their lambs and their calves and their pigeons, whatever, and then as they they have their little calf pen or whatever, they find a calf or a lamb that's got a blemish. Oh, that one's not going to make as much money on the market. That one's one's got a bad eye. Nobody's going to want to pay full price for that one. Let's use that one for our sacrifice and we'll save a buck. What difference does it make? And God says, stop. He goes on to say, oh, that, verse 10, that you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. So what you're doing is unacceptable to me. It's, it's, it's a deal. It's a discount mindset. It's It's going through the ritual, but it's not the right heart attitude. He said, go try offering one of those lame animals to your governor. He said, not even the governor of Illinois will take that one for a gift. Don't even bother. Why would you bring it to me when I am the king of the universe? It's kind of a wake-up call, isn't it? That we break out of this like convenience mindset. That, that the leftovers are what the Lord gets. The less than the best are what the Lord gives, gets, and we keep the best for ourselves. That's a discount worship that God says, don't do that to me. You see, worship means to bring yourself under. Worship means to adore and to lift up. Worship means to acknowledge all of their greatness and in the middle of all that to recognize how I fit in underneath that. And so when we worship with a discount mentality, we're not lifting up, we're reversing things and we're saving the best for ourselves and we're holding back on God. It's turned the card around. Secondly, and why don't you flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, yet again in our Old Testament here. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is that classic passage on, on obedience and worship and a second kind of worship that God does not accept is worship that's offered up in the context of disobedience. God says, don't give me that discount worship and don't give me your disobedience either. I don't want that either. And you remember this story in 1 Samuel chapter chapter 15. It's where Saul, the first king of Israel, who was appointed because the people begged for a king, God said, you really don't want it. He's going to send your boys off to war. He's going to tax you. And he's going to marry your daughters for his own wives. You don't want them. Yeah, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Okay, you can have them. They got King Saul's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And they're through the armies of Israel. God is bringing his wrath against the Amalekites. And he says with specific instruction to King Saul, go and wipe out the Amalekites. Remember, this is the story where they don't do it. They save the best of of the animals for their sacrificial system, for their worship. Look, we got this worship system. We've got to worship before the Lord. Let's do this. 
Let's save their sheep and their calves so that when we get home, we can take our sheep and our calves to the market, make more money, and why should we waste these good sheep and calves and just burning down this city? We'll go take it to our temple and worship with it. God says, no, don't do that. This is that great King James verse. You just can't beat it. When Samuel comes up to Saul, and Saul says, praise God, I've carried out everything the Lord told me. And Samuel says, what meaneth thou the bleeding of sheep in mine ears? If you obeyed the Lord, what is all that noise I hear back there? They were supposed to already go up in a sacrificial smoke fire before the Lord when the whole city was burned. Saul, you are on the shelf, buddy. It is over. And then Samuel goes on to say in the classic verse, 1 Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Wow. You want to know, you want to know what brings a smile to the face of God? It's not that you can dress up, take a shower, put on some perfume, and come on in here and sing, Worthy, you are Jesus, you are holy. Listen, God says, shut it off. If you're living in sin, if you're walking in disobedience, don't come in here and sing praise and offer up worship to me and put your little offering plate money in there as an offering of worship to me. If you're living in disobedience, what I want first and foremost is I want your obedience to my word. That other stuff just stinks to me. It's powerful, isn't it? What a wake-up call. And that's why when we gather to worship, yes, we sing, yes, we pray. That's really why we shouldn't be out at the movies on Saturday night. It's why we're not out carrying on. It's why we got to quiet ourselves, prepare our hearts, that we come in and sit down and worship, that I am prepared, that I am joining together with the family of God and the congregation, and we're joining our voices and we're acknowledging that he is God and that we are not. We're acknowledging his holiness we want to adore him with hearts of obedience and it's central to our, to our worship is the pulpit and the preaching of the word because if I don't know the word, I can't obey the word and if I don't obey the word, I can't worship the God of the word. You follow me? God says, don't want it. Don't want it. Don't bring those gifts to me. Don't bring them discount ones from wherever you picked up a good deal. Don't do that. Don't want it. Number two, don't come to me in disobedience. When you've when you got disobedience going on in your life, just save it. Number three, we won't take time to look there, but I call it distorted worship. God doesn't want any distorted worship. What do we mean by distortion? A distortion is a turning, a changing, right? And you remember uh, Exodus chapter 32 is the passage. It was a classic example. Moses and, jo- and, and Joshua are up on the mountain, and, it, and the time goes by, and days turn into weeks. Well, we don't know where Moses is. Maybe he fell off a cliff up there. Maybe, you know, we don't know. Maybe a cougar got him. He's never coming back. They go to Moses' brother Aaron, who was the head of the priest and worship. He was Moses' mouthpiece. They start pulling out their gold earrings, whipping off their gold bracelets, whipping it together. Aaron melts it together and comes up with what? A golden calf, a pure gold distortion, a misrepresentation of who God is directly against what God directed. Do not have any images. Do not try to represent me. What did Jesus tell the 
woman at the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 said, when you come to worship, it's not about a place, it's not about an object, it's about worshiping him in spirit and in truth, isn't it? And he said, so Aaron, remember the lame line that he gives Moses? Moses comes down, Moses is so angry, he smashes the Ten Commandments, the first edition. He's crazy. Calls on those, the Levites to strap on their swords and go throughout the camp and hack them up. I'm telling you, it was rough. This is a distorted worship. That's the same thing as Romans chapter 1 talks about in the downgrade of, of departing from the worship of the true God until you take created things and represent them as though they were the creator, an idol or uh, some kind of representation. People get all kinds of funny ideas instead of representing God in true fashion as he's revealed himself in his word. In the first chapter of his book called The Ultimate Priority on Worship, John MacArthur gave an interesting illustration. He says, a few years ago, the Chicago Tribune reported the story of a New Mexico woman who was frying tortillas when she noticed that the skillet burns on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. Excited, she showed it to her husband and neighbors, and they all agreed that there was a face etched on the tortilla and that it truly bore a resemblance to Jesus. Hallelujah, praise God. So the woman went to her priest to have the tortilla blessed. She testified that the tortilla had changed her life, and her husband agreed that she had been more peaceful, happy, submissive wife since the tortilla had arrived. The priest not accustomed to blessing tortillas, was somewhat reluctant, but agreed to do it. The woman took the tortilla home, put it in a glass case with piles of cotton to make it look like it was floating on clouds, built a special altar for it, and opened up the little shrine to visitors. Within a few months, it was reported that more than 8,000 people came to the shrine of Jesus of the tortilla, and all of them agreed that the face in the burn marks on the tortilla was the face of Jesus, parentheses, except for one reporter who said he thought it looked like former heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks. <laughs> Give me a break. What is that all about? I'll tell you what that's all about. That is about a distortion of what it means to worship the living God. That's what it is. And people do it all the time, all over the world. And God says, knock it off. I don't want anything to do with it. Don't, that's not work. Don't bring that to me. Don't do that. Discounts, disobedience, distortions. Finally, one more example in a warning of don't worship like this is just what I've categorized as disrespect or disrespectful worship. We have multiple illustrations of this. We have Nadab and Abihu. We have Hophni and Phinehas. Remember them? Perhaps one of the greatest illustrations is, is Uzzah. That's in 2 Samuel 6. You don't have to turn there, but you remember the passage David wanted to move the ark of the, of the Lord. That's where the Lord was with them, and they had, it was mobile at that time, and he would hover in his Shekinah glory. They would worship. They had specific, specific instruction on how to move the ark. It had rings on it. They had supposed to put poles through it, supposed to be carried on the priest's shoulders. Somebody got a better idea, because I guess it was heavy. 
So they made this ox cart up and they got some oxen and they put it on an ox cart and use it the priest. He orchestrates the whole thing and they're walking, going along, walking beside it and they hit some rocky road there and they're crossing a little stream bed and hit some rocks and the whole thing starts to rock and it's almost ready to fall off. And Yuza, he's got a great idea. He's going to reach up and just stabilize the thing and keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling down off the, off the cart. Bam! God kills him as soon as his hand touches it. Why? God says, don't touch it. It's a powerful illustration, isn't it, of the holiness of God, that we have a God of demands, parentheses. These are warning passages, and they're powerful illustrations of, of, of God having standards. Do you know what else they are for us? They're a reminder to us of the beauty of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who qualifies us to come into the presence of such a holy God and not be struck dead. How great is it that God, out of his love and his kindness, sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, to be born of Mary, according to the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, right there in Bethlehem, to grow up, to heal the lame, to make the blind to see, to give speech to the dumb, to take away the disease of the leprous, and one day to go to the cross and take your sin and my sin upon himself and he became sin for us. Why? Because the whole Old Testament is there to illustrate how hard it is and how actually impossible it is for the blood of sheep and goats to do anything for me ultimately and how inadequate I am in and of myself and how I regularly I'm just going to mess it up. I'm always looking for a discount. I'm, I'm always disobedient. I, I always got issues. I, I want to distort everything. And that now in this system, as part of the church and in this time of grace, after the cross and after the great resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, I can accept what Christ did at the cross for me, for the forgiveness of my sin, as a free gift of my salvation. And I enter into the family of God and now he says to me, Hey, Vannard, you are welcome to come into my presence anytime. God Almighty says, enter into the holy of holies at any time. Don't put a rope around your neck, around your ankle, in case I strike you dead and then I can pull you out. Might as well put it around my neck if I tried to go in there on my own strength. Because when God Almighty looks at us and our holy heavenly Father looks at us, what does he see? Those who've entered in to relationship with him through Christ and the forgiveness of sin. We're robed in the righteousness of Christ. When he looks at me, he doesn't see my bankrupt account. He doesn't see how foolish my thought processes are and how I'm always looking for a better deal somewhere. He sees me declared righteous, justified, set apart, sanctified under the account of my elder brother, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. Praise God. I am a joint heir with Christ now. And when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. I'm not deity. Don't get me wrong there. But I am one who has had imputed, given over to my bankrupt account, all of the wealth and the riches that are in Christ Jesus. You want something to worship about, get a grasp on that kind of thing. And let the marvel of the, the, of the theology of Christmas move you to worship. So there's some warning passages for us, close parentheses there. Don't bring them discounts to God. Don't come to me in disobedience, he says. 
Don't distort your worship. And do not disrespect your worship of me. Let's go to Matthew 2 now. It's this beautiful illustration of these wise men. And let's pick up in our closing minutes here a model for worship with the Magi. Come, let's worship and adore him. That's the call of Christmas, isn't it? The challenge of Christmas is that we're able to put aside the cares and the worries of the day and we're able to actually worship. But worship's going to cost us something. Today, the cost of worship. How did, the, how did the Magi create for us a model in our worship? We've already read the passage in our scripture reading. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is this one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Number one, I want you to see in the Magi that true worship is intentional. True worship is intentional. It doesn't happen by mistake. It's not like kind of like, well, I could go to Walmart today, I could go to this Christmas party today, or I could go worship. It just might or might not happen. If you're going to worship this Christmas, if you're going to live a life of worship, you have to be intentional about your worship. These Magi are interesting guys, aren't they? We really don't know a lot about them. They're Persian, probably, from present-day Iran, where Iran is. That would be some of the area that Daniel was in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, when Nebuchadnezzar came down and so forth, and... Some Bible scholars equate the fact that these Persians probably had some of the Hebrew scripture that Daniel had carried up there and studied, and that through their study of the Hebrew Bible, the parts of it that they had, they put together, because you can see from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, for example, that he was to be born in Bethlehem. It was common knowledge among the, the Hebrew Bible scholars of that day, and it was known around there that Bethlehem was going to be the city where Messiah would be born. And in fact, if you had time, you could look in John chapter 7, verse 42, where it says in John 7, 42, that they all knew that Bethlehem was going to be the place where the baby was born based upon the Old Testament prophetic scripture. And these magi living way to the north, a couple thousand miles to the north, 1,500 miles to the north, studying the Hebrew scriptures, putting, connecting the dots realized, and we don't know how much revelation they had or how it was that God moved them completely. We don't know anything about that star either. A lot of people think it was some that they were, and, and they evidently were known as astronomers, and they were into some astrology. And we don't know how much revelation they had and how much they got, but they put it together, and they, whether it was some kind of an astronomical phenomenon that they were following or whether it was some kind of a supernatural light that they followed and God told them to follow it, we don't know how that works. You just take the story as it comes. I tend to believe that it was some kind of a a Shekinah star. It was the glory of the Lord and it was revealed to them. I'm not sure everybody could see it. That's just my thought on it. It doesn't matter. And so they come following, but think about it. This wasn't some incidental stop by Walmart if you have time on your way home and grab a grab bag gift. This was, we've got to plan this thing out. We are intentional. And notice what they did when they got to Bethlehem. They inquired, because why? Because we have come to worship. We didn't come to eat. We didn't come to exchange gifts. We came to worship. Very intentional. How intentional are you about worship? 
We've got our little date books, and we schedule out our parties, and we know when we're going to so-and-so's house for dinner, and we know when we're going over the, through, the, through the field and over the woods, over the woods and through the field to Grandma's house, and we know when we're doing all that, and we've got it down, and we know, and we're planning, and we're getting everything put together. Where on my calendar does it say worship time? What would be wrong with that? I think everything would be right about that, wouldn't it? that I would slow my motor enough to schedule into my time, time where I'm going to get alone and I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to worship. I might have to go shut the door and get in a soundproof room, but I am going to sing from my heart praise and adoration songs to the Lord. You ever do that? Why not? We talk about it. We come together and corporately, and there is something special that happens as we join our voices and sing But our problem is half the time we're wondering why the Redskins haven't had a better successful season and who it is after all that they're playing today while I'm doing my worship. That doesn't cut it. They were very deliberate, very intentional. I want you to read on. Notice that in chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 3, they inquire of King Herod. King Herod calls them into his presence. He calls his chief priests and teachers of the law, verse 4. He asked them where the Christ was to be born, as I already referenced, they knew. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be my shepherd, be the shepherd of my people Israel. Secondly, I want you to see that their worship was knowledgeable. Not only was their worship intentional, but their worship was knowledgeable. They weren't just worshiping anything. They had come to worship the Messiah. We don't worship a tortilla. We don't create objects of our worship. We're not motivated to go to some kind of a ritualistic worship session where we're going to drum up a feeling. We have to have have a right attitude based upon the truth of Scripture to know who He is that our hearts respond accordingly and properly, that based on knowledge that I worship him in spirit, as I've already referenced, and in, what's the next word? Truth. What a shame for us to worship the Lord in a way that is inappropriate. It's easy to happen. My worship is intentional. Notice that the Magi were knowledgeable about who they were to worship. They had a relation, they had a, a sense of of Messiah coming, and they wanted to worship Jesus. I want you to notice as they then make their way away from Herod, that when they saw the star, verse 10, they made their way to the place, verse 9, where the child was, and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They then bow down in worship. How much joy do you have in your worship? How much emotion do you have in your worship? Number three, I want you to see that the Magi were emotional. That's hard for some of us, isn't it? My grandmother was full German. We don't express our emotions. You know, my daddy and my mama never told me, I had a guy tell me just this week in my office, I never had my mother ever put her arms around me and tell me that she loved me, ever. I'm a full-grown man with tears going down his cheeks in my study this week. What's that do to you emotionally? Listen, everybody's got a story and everybody's got issues. 
But when we get to the place where we understand who we were, who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ, it's got to drum up some emotion, doesn't it? And we're kind of funny. There's all kinds of reasons, and this is kind of a long discussion as to why we're the way we are. I was raised up in a very conservative Bible church, for example. Man, if you raised even one hand for a second and put it down, man, they'd be after you. You'd go on Pentecostal, you charismatic. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with putting your hands up in worship? What's wrong with shutting your eyes? What would be wrong with weeping? Different personalities enter into this in a different way. The Bible's full of emotional expression, isn't it? You remember that powerful story where David, when the ark had finally returned, and, and David danced before the Lord. And evidently got so excited, he started throwing off some of his clothes. Not sure why or what he did or how far down to the skin he got. But looking up out of the window is his, his wife, who was Saul's daughter, Michael. She looks out the window. She evidently could spot across the street in the parade there where, where the king was going out before the ark and he's dancing and carrying on and he's caught up in ecstatic worship before the Lord, full of emotion. And the reality of being in the presence of God and evidently there's some young girls standing along the street and started snickering when they saw the king. So his wife's looking out the window and she sees the girls looking at her husband half, half naked or something. He gets home and Michael chastises him. She lights into him. What in the world were you thinking? You're the king and you're out there dancing around and carrying on and your clothes were falling off. And, and he says, I was worshiping before the Lord. Don't mess with me. And God judges her by never allowing her to have children. I'm not suggesting in any way that people jump up and start taking their clothes off before the Lord. But I am suggesting that we've got to be very careful about judging other people's emotional response in worship. It's not wrong to raise your hands. It's not wrong to move your head a little bit. Personally, I can't do that very well when I'm in a group of people because the second I start doing something, I, for some reason, the way my brain is wired, I begin to think about what people are thinking about watching me. And I kind of lose it. I used to run a lot over in Forest Hills where we lived in Martinsburg before we built our house over here. There's a development there. It was closed to, through traffic at that time. And I used to run a lot at night. And often because of my schedule, it would be after dark when I'd run and I knew the roads well. I knew where every crack was in the road. It didn't bother me to run in the darkness. And I, don't, I think it's more than endorphins, but I used to be able to worship really well when I ran. I'd be able to focus. I could meditate. I could, I could grasp concepts. And the Lord would use those times to just renew my spirit and I would worship. I would have maybe the words of a praise song going through my mind or I would have a, a theological concept that I was meditating on. And, and by the time I was done, and then I would walk a while just to warm down and just walk. And, and I can remember different times, not always, but sometimes I would, have, I would put my hands up in the air and just, Lord, you know, and just talk to the Lord and just worship Him. I can't do that when anybody's looking, but I can do that when I'm alone. I think it's very appropriate to have an emotional response to the reality. Listen, if hell is real and heaven is real and Jesus is the only way and it is all true, that if he died on the cross for a dirty, rotten sinner like me and I've accepted this free gift of salvation and now I'm a redeemed one and I'm a joint heir with Christ and, and all of the riches that are in Christ are mine, how can that not be emotional? You got issues if that doesn't make you emotional. It was intentional, it was knowledgeable, it was emotional. I want you to notice that they bowed down in verse 11. They bowed down to worship the Lord. It was humble worship. 
Now, I think it would be very appropriate this Christmas time for us to find time, and I would recommend you do this in private. You shut the door, and you literally bow down before the Lord with intentional worship. Say, but I feel funny. So, there is something about bending your knee or lying prostrate on the floor. I said the right word, didn't I? There's another medical term I was trying not to say. Lying on the floor, face down. Worshiping, right? I mean, we schedule time to watch a football game. We schedule time to clean the garage. Why wouldn't I schedule some time to actually worship? Why would I let it be so incidental? I need to be intentional. It's based on my knowledge of who God is and who Christ is and what he did for me. It's emotional to me for that to happen, and it's humble. It's, it, it's, it brings out a humility in me. That's why, as I worship, I am lifting him up. I am adoring him. I am recognizing that he is the king, that he is God, that I am not, that I am an old dirtbag. I am just nothing. And so I'm on my face before the Lord in an actual physical, emotional response symbolizing that I, I lift him up. I think that's right. I don't think that's wrong. I think that very few of us ever do that in our culture. The Muslims get this part pretty right, don't they? But if kissing the dirt and sticking my hiney up in the air is required for me to go to heaven, then I'll do that. They're not afraid in the middle of, a, of an airport. I've been around all over the world in airports. They even have signs up for worship spots for them to put their rug down and go worship and get on their face. That's a religion. They're doing that so they can go to heaven. We are already going to heaven, and we do it because of our great joy that overflows in us, right? And we don't get around to it. Something wrong with that picture. Not only is it emotional and it's humble, but finally, let's emphasize the fact as we conclude that it's a sacrificial worship. Notice that they didn't swing by the blue light special discount counter grab a few little candy canes and drop them off at the manger. I guess they're at the house now. It's sometime later than the manger. On coming to the house, verse 11, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to her, they returned to their country by another route. You know what they did? Before they ever left home, they thought to themselves, what is something really valuable that I can bring this king, Messiah, the Savior? Now, does God need anything we have? Is, does God's wallet get a little lean sometimes, and so we've got to take an offering for God? No, you know what makes this offering a worship? An act of worship? Everything about my heart attitude. I give this for the furtherance of the gospel to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of worship. We drop our checks in. Are you worshiping? Have you put in anything valuable? Are you trying to figure out what's the least amount you can get by with? That's what you should do if you're not genuinely worshiping in spirit and in truth. How is it that we give something of value to a God who already has everything? That's a funny concept, isn't it? You know what I think you have to do? I think you have to just pray and have your eyes open and you have to think and you have to say, okay, Lord, how can I give to you through my physical, material, financial world? 
That's a weird concept, isn't it? To give to God. I'm regularly cognizant of the fact that when I receive my paycheck every other Thursday, that that, that was made up of 5 and 10 and 20 and $50 bills that people put in the offering plate in an act of worship. I better be careful. That's a really, it's almost a bizarre concept, isn't it? I don't know, maybe there's a benevolent need. Maybe there is something, and praise God for the response to the 52-week payoff one year of the debt in one month. It was an incredible response. There's only about 10 left on the board, $220 gifts, 52 of them for this month to pay off the bank loan for this year. Don't do it unless you can do it as an act of worship, Lord. And that's why when you're writing your check, it shouldn't be last minute. You should pray and you should say, Lord, as I write this, I don't know what you say, but somehow your heart and your mind have to come together and you say, Lord, I offer this to you as an act of, it's a love gift to you. May Jesus Christ somehow be lifted up. May Johanny Capessi today reach some young people with these soccer balls that we've given for the glory of the gospel in Malawi, Africa today. May Jesus Christ be lifted up among the Lethbridge Native American Blackfoot Indians or out on a reservation somewhere because I write this check, Lord, for Dan and Barb Keys. We had a guy drop a Buick off out here the other week. I want to give this to the church. He was saying, I want to give this to the Lord. It's always funny, and I appreciate it. The car is good. Nobody ever brings a brand new car and drops it off. Always bring a car they want to get rid of. Now, I know the guy who gave the car and everything, and I'd probably say that even if he was here. He's processed it, and I'm not minimizing his gift, and I'm not minimizing his hard attitude. But isn't that funny how our brain works? I wonder if I have any leftovers that I can give here. You see, if it's going to be part of our act of worship, it should be costly. It should be like David. I refuse to give anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. I mean, that's how it is when we prepare a Sunday school lesson, right? Or we prepare some music. Man, this is hard. Man, I got extra rehearsals. I really wish I didn't have to do all this. Well, then don't. Don't do it. If you're not willing for it to cost you something. It's amazing to me what people will do for the things that they love to do. I amaze myself what I will do to go deer hunting. It's moronic. If church started at 4.30 in the morning, how many people would be here? Get everybody dressed in blaze orange, put loaded rifles in their hands, and you have a whole crew of guys here. You understand what I'm saying? Well, time is up, and it's time to go home and watch football. Listen, if our worship is not intentional, it will never happen. But that intentional worship needs to be knowledgeable worship, doesn't it? It needs to be based on the realities of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then that is going to produce an emotional response, which in our humility we will find ourselves on our knees and on our face before the Lord. And then when we get up off our knees and off our face, we're going to be thinking, what can I give the Lord that's of value? You know the most valuable thing you have? Not only your time, but yourself. The Lord wants all of you, doesn't he? Do you think of your life as the Lord owning everything you have? Have you given yourself away for the Lord? 
I was emailing a missionary just last night, struggling to stay on the field, wanting a response, admitting, I am so ready to come home. I just can't handle it. It's one thing to say, Lord, you've got everything. It's another thing to give him something that really costs something. When you're in the middle of Africa at Christmas time, it costs you something. You know that? When's the last time you gave the Lord anything that was of value? Make sure you do it if you do it so that nobody else can see it or limit that because it's so hard not to distort our worship at that point. May the Lord bless you this Christmas as we let the Spirit of God move our hearts and change us and renew us and we become true worshipers. Let's pray. Father, teach us the lessons we need to learn and bring conviction where conviction is needed and turn our attention away from the lesser things that continually swamp us. And may Jesus truly be our all in all. May it be true of us that we love you more than gold or silver. And may it be true of us that only you can satisfy. Lord, may our hearts not be divided and may we be able to worship you in spirit and in truth and not bring to you a distorted, discounted, disobedient worship. So teach us and grow us and show us how to get our eyes off ourselves and our eyes off the world and turn them upon Jesus this Christmas. Father, thank you and we thank you as a congregation in all humility for your great grace and that Jesus was willing to set aside for a season the use of all of his godness to take upon himself the form of a servant and become obedient even unto death, death on a cross, so that we can have life. Lord, we struggle to understand these things, and yet they do move us, and the realities strike home. We do adore Jesus today. We long to be in your presence one day. How great it's going to be to join our voices before the throne to sing for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.